This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls, and today we're featuring immigration law in our Modern Law Library series by talking with Peter Afrasiabi about his newly released book, Show Trials, How Property Gets More Legal Protection Than People in Our Failed Immigration System. Peter, you have a legal background in intellectual property law in addition to your work in immigration. Can you tell us how your practice gives you a unique perspective on two very dissimilar areas of law? Absolutely. My my primary practice, of course, is intellectual property, and I'm in the federal courts primarily, occasionally the state courts also. And so I've just spent many, many years litigating issues involving ownership of property, property rights, and dealing with the intersection of property rights in a judicial system and the nature of the process that applies, you know, to the adjudication of those rights. And at the exact same time that I've been litigating in intellectual property court over the last 15 years, um, I've also been an adjunct professor litigating many, many pro bono cases in immigration courts, both through my adjunct professor work in the law school clinics, but also just on my own as an area of, of law I've devoted some energies to. So I've, at the same time, been addressing what I call liberty rights and human rights related cases in the, in the immigration system, both the specific immigration courts and just the, the broader legal system and framework. And that dual experience between both legal systems is what led to the development of the thesis for the book and ultimately the book. So um, you talk in the book about this dichotomy between them. What are some of the systemic differences you see between immigration courts and what you call property courts? The, the systemic differences exist really at every level within the court systems. And so the, the book focuses on the major players or constituents within the system and each system and, and, and really seeks to assess them. And so the, the, major, the, the, the major component of the immigration system, of course, starts with the immigration judiciary and the, the nature of that judiciary, who the judges are as, as a whole, how they're selected, their backgrounds, their experience, their temperament. And the, the book really departs from there by assessing, by assessing that group and constituency and then also, the, you know, your corresponding group in, in our federal courts or what we can call our property courts. And that's sort of the, the major departing point where, from where you can frame the system and then start looking at the other components. To put a more human face on it, um, you write about several immigration clients you've had and their struggles. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the man that you call Ali Abad? Absolutely. Ali was a victim of horrendous torture in Iraq under Saddam Hussein's regime. Um, uh, you know, a, a really staggering fact pattern in terms of the persecution he suffered and the torture he suffered. And he very fortunately made his way to America, but then fell into the American immigration system, which which fundamentally, because of the broken nature of the system, ultimately lost track of him. He was placed in detention when he asked for asylum. He was then placed literally in, in Bakersfield County Jail and 
suffered extremely here also and unfortunately lost originally before the immigration courts because there's no right to counsel so he didn't have a formal lawyer appointed and you know he had the pro bono services of a brand new law grad but that that was not enough obviously and so eventually he made his way on when he was going on appeal to to myself and my law partner John Terranian and we were then able to take his case and and help him and he really was and is just sort of an incredible example of someone who the asylum laws are designed to protect he was you know at the time a 35 year old man who was an engineer by training and had you know really struggled heavily to deal with the religious strife in Iraq he was a Shiite Muslim so who who of course were the minority group in, in Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath government and, and that was sort of the, the beginnings of his troubles there where he had been tortured so horribly and you know he was the, he was one of the you know you meet many people as a lawyer and he was one of the most compelling human stories and, and witnesses I'd ever seen in terms of just his 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 honesty his veracity and the, the real horrors that he experienced which were so hard for him to talk about and it was very hard for us to listen to deal with and 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 assess in terms of even putting on his trial because it was so hard for him to, to even talk about his experiences. And well, you note know in the in the book the fact that this happened as we were about to go to war with Iraq and so he in some ways had a, you know, a, a leg up in that people were interested in his story. Yes, he had a huge leg up. Um but for but for the United States going to war in Iraq, there's a very good chance he would have lost and he never would have received a new trial. He would have been ordered deported and it was the fortuitous timing of you know, America getting ready to go to war in Iraq and then going to war in Iraq with the large public discourse about the need to liberate the Iraqi people from Saddam Hussein as being part of the justification for the war. And we were very, very fortunate that we were then able to take advantage of those sort of political headwinds and reach out to the media to talk to them about the existence of a man who was a victim of this regime who we had here in America that we were not helping. And we we reached out to journalists who were questioning the motives for the war, obviously, to to, to share this story to, to see if they would be willing to give it some attention as an entree into the larger stories they were writing about the, the motives for the war. And we were very fortunate that we got some press attention on his case. And then eventually one of the CBS-related news shows wanted to, they you know, phoned me one day and wanted to do a program on, on Ali. And that was sort of the turning point for us in terms of the case, in terms of being able to get enough attention at the U.S. government level to secure a remand of his case where it was pending before the Ninth Circuit to allow him to have a new trial um, so that he could at least have a shot at his day in court. You you talk about several clients you've had, and in almost every story, it seems like the decision hangs on some random happenstance and could have gone either way. Is there a way to make our immigration courts a little more consistent? There is. And, you know, all of the cases, while individual cases and, and, you know, one must assess them individually, the randomness and happenstance you refer to is one that multiplies across all cases because of the nature of the system and, and, its, and its broken pieces. And so you can 
absolutely fix the immigration system so that those perceived wrongs don't occur. And fundamentally, it starts, I believe, with securing a new immigration judiciary. We, we need a judiciary that, that matches quality-wise our federal courts and, and our stellar federal judiciary who are deciding our patent copyright disputes, our criminal cases, and our labor disputes, and all the disputes in federal court. And if we start there and develop a robust judiciary to protect the human life and liberty interests of these people, that becomes the major starting point. You need more because one of the major problems with immigration cases is that there are large swaths of cases for which there's no right to appellate review whatsoever before a, a federal court, before an Article III court. So the decision maker ultimately is the executive controlled court and absent providing the same appellate review rights back to the constitutional courts, the same courts where we provide appellate review rights for every kind of property we have, you'll, you, you will never be, be able to achieve the consistency and correctness in legal decisions. The appellate courts exist to decide questions of law for large jurisdictions, and we must have Article III judges, I believe, deciding all of these cases and establishing law so that better trained and better qualified judges decide them. We also need other components to the system, similar components that we have in our property court to help ensure that the process functions in a fair way. And one example, for example, is the right to attend a mediation, which is a very important right in, in our federal courts and a very important way to resolve litigation and save social resources. And it doesn't exist in immigration court, but if it did, we could reduce substantially the amount of unnecessary litigation the taxpayers are paying for, I believe, and, and find more you know, more resolution to these cases. Those sort of components, along with fundamentally there needs to be a right to an attorney, and, and that while a substantive right, it's very, very critical to ensure a fair process. And when you look at the underlying reason and rationale for why there is a right to counsel in criminal cases, that that same rationale applies fully, I believe, in immigration court because fundamentally we're dealing with the same potential risk to one's loss of their liberty rights or even their life if there's a wrongful deportation back to a place like Iraq, for example, in the case of Ali. And you need that attorney on each side of the scale of justice. The government has their one deporting the person. You need one on the other side so that you can be sure the process is performed fairly and fully. Um, so that if we do end up deporting someone, we know that it's only after a fair trial before a fair judge where everyone was represented by counsel, where the state's pressure has been brought to bear on someone, but they've had a chance to fight and plead their case, and where ultimately they have the right to review in an in a, in a Article Three constitutional court. That, those are just some of uh, a few proposals that you have towards the end of the book, but uh, I thought people would be interested in hearing an excerpt. Would you like to read one? I'd be happy to. Thank you. When I was in law school, I did not care about immigration law or policy. I never even took a class on immigration law. I was a law student in California in 1994 when the voters placed on the ballot the much-debated Proposition 187, a ballot initiative aimed at denying non-citizens access to public schools or public health care services. Proposition 187 was debated heavily in my law school and among the law students. It was the largest polit political issue in California that year and part of an even larger national debate on immigration that was gripping America. The law school even brought in guest speakers to debate the pending initiative. 
but I paid little attention to the discussion and discourse, barely enough to even really care whether Proposition 187 passed or not. In all honesty, too concerned about my studies, my grades, my own future. I would never have believed then that several years later, immigration cases would be a significant part of my legal practice, my academic endeavors, and my life. I wish I could say I always knew the system was unfair and that it was always my passion to go to law school to help immigrants and to fight for their just causes, but that would not be true. Instead, it is through time and myriad litigation efforts that I have come to see that injustice in our immigration system exists, an injustice that is meted out in a court system that is unlike any court system the average American would recognize or expect. This book is about the unfair state of the immigration system as seen through the stories of real people who have traversed it. It is about a system that has enacted draconian laws without any real thought behind them, the same laws that mandate families like the Alvarados to forever leave America and her democracy without any real process to assess whether rejecting them is good, right, or just. It is also about how our constitutional courts protect our property with greater rights and processes than our immigration courts afford human beings. In short, it is about our failed immigration system. In this book, I explore the modern immigration system and its gritty reality, how cases play out from beginning to end, the tragic impact on people who are fundamentally Americans, and how our immigration system simply does not dispense real justice. I will show you some people who have been lost in the broken immigration system and some who survived. You may agree with me that the immigration system needs fundamental repairs, you may even hold firm to a belief that people like the Alvarados deserve to be removed from our society. But you will see why a lawyer who was once relatively indifferent to immigration issues became convinced that the current American immigration system is deeply flawed and does not live up to American ideals of justice. Peter, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.